1: everybody, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, which is one of the many podcast channels you can find on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Hopkin. I'm one of the hosts of this channel, and today my guest is Kate Parker-Horrigan, who will be talking about her new book, which is also her first book, and which is called Consuming Katrina, Public Disaster and Personal Narrative. Kate Parker-Horrigan, welcome to New Books in Folklore. Thank you, Rachel. I'm so happy to be here. So I know that you're currently an associate professor in folk studies at Western Kentucky University, which is where I did my master's. You're also a co-editor of the Journal of American Folklore. And before you took up your professorship at Western Kentucky University, you got your PhD from the Ohio State University, which is where I'm currently a PhD candidate. Right. So there's some overlap in our kind of trajectories, but I don't know that much about you. So I wonder if you could <laughs> start by telling us all a little bit about yourself and perhaps including your how you came to be a folklorist story? Sure. Um, I love telling those stories. Um, (laughs) so I, uh,
0: basically it's sort of, um, it's funny this, this story for me has, each time I tell it, it starts a little further back in my life. Um, because I initially thought of it as, um, sort of an intellectual journey, but then as I think about things that for example, I did as a a child, I sort of think I have these memories and now I think, oh, yeah, well, no wonder I'm a folklorist. Um, For example, I grew up um, outside of uh, Washington, D.C. and um, grew up going to the Folklife Festival in the National Mall um, and just in a a very sort of um, environment that celebrated um, traditional cultures and um, was was frequently at museums and things of the sort. So I think I had sort of an early exposure to the types of things, especially that uh, public folklorists do, but I didn't really, wasn't aware, like many um, folklorists, I wasn't aware of it as a field until uh, much later in life. Um, So in fact, the story of how I became a folklorist is very tied up um, in the story of how I wrote this book, Consuming Katrina, um, because I was a a student at Tulane University in New Orleans um, and I had just started my uh, master's program there in the English department. Uh, and I was very interested in uh, literature at that point and particularly in literature about conflict, about trauma, um, mostly historical conflict. Um, and as a, a, um, a, new master's student, I, uh, the Tulane university has what they call a, a four plus one MA program where you take You take as an undergraduate, you take some graduate classes, and then you sort of do this intensive um, fifth year where you really dig into your graduate studies. Um, And so, my uh, cohort and I sort of joked that we went from four plus one to four plus Katrina because the year that we were um, supposed to be doing this intensive uh, graduate work, Tulane University ended up shutting down. Um, This was two thousand five, and they ended up closing the university for the fall semester because the because of the hurricane. so it, 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 what happened for me, um, sort of professionally and intellectually, was at the same time that I was beginning to really study um, these fictional narratives of trauma and conflict, um, I was sort of immersed in this um, environment of people sharing personal stories um, of, of their, their experiences during Hurricane Katrina. And so I just became much more interested in in oral history and personal narrative, um, not necessarily having the terminology for it at the time, but sort of recognizing the similarities between stories I was reading and and studying and the stories I was hearing in everyday life. Um, and so I, when I applied to PhD programs, uh, fortunately I ended up um, sort of recognizing just enough <laughs> the um overlap between my interests and um those of, of some folklorists at Ohio State University. Um and I went there to to work with Amy Schumann, who's involved in, among other things, she was involved at the time in something called Project Narrative there. And uh, when I began talking with her, she gently told me well you know this is what you're doing is it's called folklore <laughs> um and and so I I sort of discovered the field that way um from the my English background from this literary perspective oh, and then
1: right. I hadn't realized you found it so late so you'd come as yes, an English yes. graduate student and
0: then yes oh. um yeah I I ended up there um thinking I was going to be doing sort of more um narrative theory and then kept you know the, the further I got into the literary stuff the more I kept thinking well where are the where are the people, um, and they were over at the at the um, Center for Folklore <laughs> Studies. So, um, so I, I became sort of uh, aware of of the discipline, and um, you know, then be, right away in in my um,
1: doctoral studies, began taking folklore classes and and falling in love with. field, as so many of us do. Just before we go on and talk about the book, I wonder if you can offer some kind of definition of folklore, just to help orientate our listeners who don't have a background in academic folklore study.
0: Sure. Well, usually, um, when I teach, I usually sort of shorthand it as informal, expressive culture. Um, And I think, I mean, there are are many things um, that fall within that. Um, You know, I, my interest areas tend to be on the narrative side. So I'm looking at, um, you know, personal narratives, um, informal narrative expressions. Um, I, I talk a lot about, um, when I'm trying to explain what folk, what I do to other people, I sort of, um, talk about traditions belonging to particular groups. Um, I think one element of, of folklore that's become important to me is the idea of, Um, sort of attending to uh, marginalized traditions and and narratives in particular. Um, So looking at, um, you know, not only um, what are the stories that are being sort of told in, in dominant culture, but how are um, people interacting with those stories, formulating their own versions of those stories um, and how are um, people's sort of narratives being uh, moved in and out of, of those more, more dominant narratives, as we could call them.
1: So that brings us very neatly to this book, because that's precisely what you're doing in this book. You've said that you were studying at Tulane in New Orleans at the time of the hurricane, but how did the book come about? When did you first start thinking about it?
0: Well, I, when I started thinking about the, the questions in the book, I certainly wasn't imagining <laughs> uh, writing a book. Um, I, but what happened was I sort of um, noticed you know i guess in in all of the contexts that i was operating in at the time so as as a student um as a survivor um at, you know at someone who i should qualify that you know someone who evacuated but was very much um so it was safe during the the sort of brunt of the storm but very much dealing with the aftermath um when i returned to the city um and um and then later as a, a teacher in new orleans teaching uh, freshman composition classes at at a community college there um, just sort of recognizing the ways that people were um, grappling with narrative and and using narratives to um, to as, as part of their recovery. And you know, I just was very struck by the disconnect between um, the the media narratives, um, the sort of uh, ways that that people perceived experiences um, who are not from New Orleans or who had never been there. I um, mean, you know, I had people when I would travel outside the city, people, you know, years later, people would say things like, Oh, is it still underwater? You know, and it was just this sort of total cluelessness. Right. Um, and, and so that, the sort of that aspect. And then um, the, at that time, this sort of persistence and insistence on um, people who were there and who had had those experiences of, of attempting to make sense of their, um, their experiences through narration. Um, and so I, I became very interested in that. Um, even, you know, right away sort of as a master student, um, I started at that time sort of looking at, um, actually some <laughs> kind of just local culture, you know, things like there were bands, there's a, um, you know, some great, as you probably know, some great bath brass bands in new Orleans who, um, would improvise their songs. So, you know, they're, they're would play these, be playing these packed shows with people who are just like so happy to be back in New Orleans, so happy to be out listening to music. And they would start playing like these sort of improvised Katrina songs where um, the one, one that I love, um, which I can't remember if it was Rebirth Brass Band or uh, I think it was, um, and they had this song that was, you know, I, I, I want your FEMA number, which it was just this sort of like reference that would not make sense to anyone who was not living in this reality of constantly having to interact with um, with FEMA, with this federal agency. Everybody had a FEMA number because that was how you sort of um, were, had to identify yourself if you were calling about, you know, your request for financial assistance or anything like this. And so they made up this like new pickup line of I want your FEMA number. Um, and that was part of this, this song that that this local band was playing. So that's a very long way of saying um, I sort of, I sort of became really interested in the the vernacular responses um,
1: to Katrina. For people who can't remember or who aren't terribly familiar with the discourse as it plays out in, a, in American media in particular, can you tell our listeners some of the dominant narratives that were circulating in the mainstream media or through other widely networked channels?
0: Sure, and and also, I mean, I, I should probably also say um, because this is sort of becoming a, a historical event, right? So I should probably have started by saying, you know, this was um, a hurricane that hit the Gulf Coast of, of the Southeast United States in August of, of 2005, um, and that caused a, a significant um, damage to the infrastructure and uh, a high number of, of deaths, um, which. The estimates really range widely, but, um, often fall sort of around a thousand, between a thousand and 1200, um, people. And so the, the way that it was depicted in national news media, uh, was, um, you know, first there was this sort of, um, uh, narrative that the city was, had devolved into total chaos, um, that, uh, survivors that people who, who were um, still in the city, first of all, were sort of there by their own volition that they had refused. They were sort of these like, you know, um, insubordinate, they hadn't followed the evacuations orders, evacuation orders. Um, uh, so the kind of non-compliant um, and, and then also the media was presenting people who were still in the city as it was beginning to flood. Um, and again, for people perhaps don't remember the the historical um, circumstances, Uh, the flooding was a result of uh, failures in the the levee systems, which protect this low lying city, right? So this was not, um, as we've seen in some recent hurricanes, this is not sort of directly flooding as a result of of heavy rains, but as of um, compromised infrastructure. So, you know, as this, this flooding started to overwhelm the city, and people were still there, and they were stuck there, um, the media began to portray those people as a threat um, and as sort of lawless and b- a violent mob, um, and that narrative really uh, had negative consequences for rescue efforts because people, both sort of um, official first responders and then also um, you know ordinary people who were uh, you know interested in helping, were frequently deterred by this. Media narrative that there were people looting, um, that that uh, there were sort of uh, you know armed gangs roaming the city, um, you know shooting at at rescuers and um, you know essentially a violent and dangerous um, criminals. Uh, whereas you know th- come to find out, of course, and and um, you know the, the experiences of people within the city was were that they were abandoned by um, rescuers, by first responders. In many cases, um, they were stranded, uh, you know, in their neighborhoods or in these um, shelters of last resort, like the New Orleans Superdome or the Convention Center, without aid. Um, and the other narrative, which was a little less explicit, I would say, but which really comes out, I think, in especially sort of in the visual representations of um, the of survivors, was uh, this depiction of the people who are left there as um, sort of helpless, passive and helpless, essentially. So you have these two narratives happening simultaneously. One is um, people who are, are still there are dangerous, they're a threat. And one is um, they can do nothing to help themselves. Um, and partly because of institutionalized racism, the demographics, the, the sort of um, geography of the city and, and the um, infrastructure over time, the most vulnerable populations were African-American. And so the, it was this sort of depiction of either, you know, an angry black mob or sort of large groups of uh, people of color appearing sort of, um, you know, helpless and, and incompetent. And that was the those were the misrepresentations that were predominant in the media.
1: So, in this book, you're interrogating and investigating and analyzing various narratives that were produced in the wake of this disaster. Some directly from people who survived, and some represented in the work of other people. Yeah. Um. So, it, essentially, I mean, there's sort of a, a couple things.
0: Um. One, I became involved um, thanks to some folklore colleagues um, at, at that time, I became involved with a project that Carl Lindahl and Pat Jasper in Houston, Texas were working on. And uh, Carl and Pat had initiated this project called the surviving Katrina and Rita in Houston project, where they were um, hiring and training survivors to document, to interview and document the experiences of other survivors. So this um, survivor to survivor idea. And they had collected hundreds of interviews through this project. So again, um, training and and compensating survivors to conduct these interviews. The idea being that, well, I mean, sort of twofold. One, that this is a, a way to, to, create community um, among people who are have just been displaced from their communities and s- desperately need, um, you know, a, a sort of sense of, of having people in in like situation. And two, that it's easier to tell your story to someone who is in a similar boat, right? Um, perhaps that's the wrong metaphor when you're talking about a flood, but uh, it, it, you know, to someone who's, who's of a similar background, who's not a, professional outsider, um, and especially in the wake of Katrina, when survivors were skeptical of people interviewing them because they were seeing themselves misrepresented by news media. So this collection existed, this project existed, this documentation was going on in Houston immediately following the hurricane. Um, And I came to it uh, a few years after the fact, after I had uh, left New Orleans myself and gone back to school, uh, and I was hired by the by Surviving Katrina and Reed in Houston to transcribe these interviews um, for their, their archive. And in the course of that, um, just hearing people talk about their experiences and telling these incredible stories and often talking about their frustrations with the way that they had been represented and their desire for these narratives in their own words, on their own terms, to be heard by others. So I was really interested in um, working with those narratives, with sharing them in some way. And then at the same time, I'm sort of seeing in, in the years following the hurricane, these more popular publications that are coming out, these nonfiction representations of survivors um, that are very different from the interview narratives I'm listening to. So I was interested in sort of looking at comparing those um, the Stories that people wanted to be told about themselves, and then the stories that were actually often being told
1: in the first chapter, which is effectively your introduction you 're setting out your 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 argument. Do you want to tell us about that, or shall we hear about the analysis first and then come back to your overall argument it 's up to you
0: oh.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk okay. about analysis first and then
0: maybe, and maybe the okay. argument Okay, So will, in the second you know. chapter,
1: you're looking at a couple of narratives that came about as part of the Surviving Katrina and Rita and Houston project. And you're focusing on the narratives in particular of somebody called Sean and somebody called Patrice. So these, these two stories, um, these are partly...
0: Uh, narratives that I was interested in because they were, uh, well, first of all, they were remarkable people. I mean, you can sort of see in in their stories, the things that they endured, the things that they were able to do, um, you know, in the midst of these, you know, horrific circumstances of being abandoned um, in the wake of disaster. So, I mean, they were, they were moving in that way. They're compelling in that way. Um, But also from the sort of analytical standpoint, Um, These are both people who, uh, who, you know, Patrice is in in particular someone who talks about the same experience at two different times. And so I was interested in that, um, looking at sort of how in different contexts her narrative would emerge differently. um, and, And sort of coming back to that question of what kinds of conditions enable people to talk about their experiences in the ways that they want to. And so, looking for in her case at two very different interview contexts, and looking at what was it that emerged for her as a as a person and as a as a narrator. And in her case, in the second story, that second or the second time she tells her story of uh, post Katrina being stuck on this bridge, of seeing people around her struggling, in particular, seeing this older woman who is laying on the ground. And the first time she talks about this, it's sort of. She just appears as uh, sort of a, a helpless bystander, you know in, by her own account, I and mean, that's sort of the implication of the way she tells the story. The second time in what I argue is a much more favorable interview context where she is made to feel at ease, where she's sort of in control of the um, situation of of telling the story, she emerges as someone who actually um, is capable and is is helping uh, her fellow you know new Orleanians, of of helping these fellow survivors. And as someone when she talks about the same woman as ha- who, someone who has some agency to assist her. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just very interesting to see how the story sort of happens differently in different contexts. So that was one thing that attracted me to these two. Um, but I mean, and, and then you just have the fact that like Sean, for example, is just such a great storyteller I and mean, he's talking about this incredibly dramatic context of being uh, working in a prison. Um, there are, uh, were you know a lot of thought this story is important as well because it's something that didn't receive as much attention as it should have the way that um you know the official um sort of disaster planning and um and response really neglected to to account for safely evacuating prisoners and prison workers um and Sean talks about that um talks about how he was in the prison and, you know, the, the inmates were becoming agitated because they didn't know what was happening. And, and the, I mean, the flood's water is rising inside the building and, and people just understandably are terrified. Um, and so he sort of talks about that. And um, again, from the perspective of, of looking at how he tells the story, so not just this remarkable content, but how he talks about it he presents himself as someone who despite not having any information not being sort of in the know um you know he was in fact acted very responsibly and he's and he's acting very responsibly later in sharing this story um and he implicitly contrasts that with those officials who had the information who had the information ahead of time and who didn't you know really make the sort of responsible choices about um, safe evacuation.
1: Did these two people did you tell them that you were analyzing their particular narratives in your work? I'm curious if they if they know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um I I did um you know one of the things one of the the frustrating things about I mean this I mentioned before in listening to these um interviews, you know people are talking in the recordings about how much they want these, their stories to get out. But um, part of the nature of, of making this and uh, creating this project, the organizers uh, really wanted to, to have a, a very sort of safe um, space for, for people to talk about experiences that were traumatic, um, that at times were, uh, you know, involved things that maybe they would not want to speak publicly about. Um, and so there, the um, interviews, in order for um, researchers to access them or, and write about them, um, require the explicit permission of the interviewee.
1: Right. That's well. That's terrific. It, it is. It is. Um, it, it's. It's. I
0: think was was absolutely essential to the sort of mission and success of, of the documentation project. Um, what's happened? I mean, what the sort of frustrating maybe uh, consequence of it. Um, is that because these were largely people who were, at that time, transient, these are people who were displaced, who were living at temporary addresses, who since have moved on, um, in some right. cases, they're difficult to track down. So in some some cases, it's difficult to get that permission. Um, so I haven't been able, as much as I would really have liked, I haven't been able to um, build sort of... Um, you know, long-term relationships with people and sort of talk about their their narratives after the fact. Um, you know, I was able to just sort of get, reach folks to the extent that they could sign off, um, but but not really to, you know, to do this sort of reciprocal ethnography that like now, years later, you know, being um, sort of more um, established in the field of folklore, I, I wish that I had had the ability to, to do that or, or did now. Um, but, and that's partly... We can talk about it later, but partly why I sort of went back ten years later, um even if it's not to talk directly to these folks um to talk to other survivors and and get their perspective on um some of the conclusions I was drawing and, and patterns I was seeing.
1: But the next three chapters are actually devoted to narratives as they are pre- presented mm-hmm. or represented in the works of other people and the first of these chapters focuses on Dave Eggers. Zaytun. Tell us about this piece.
0: Sure. So um, Zaytun is a, a nonfiction. Um, it was a, a bestseller um, written by Dave Eggers, who's um, you know a fairly established author, sort of established literary reputa- reputation. Um, and he published Zaytun in, in 2009, um, and it tells the story of this man, Abdul Rahman Zaytun, who is a Syrian American immigrant who um decided to stay in new orleans during katrina and um after that af- after the flooding began he sort of found himself going around the city in a canoe um assisting people rescuing people and then seemingly out of nowhere um he was a- arrested by um by first responders i i believe it was national guard um But he was arrested and um, brought to this sort of makeshift prison in downtown New Orleans and then later to, um, you know, to another prison for an extended period of time with no phone call, no sort of due process um, and accused of of being a terrorist um, because of his, his Syrian name and appearance. Um, So, you know, he, this is this wrongful, like, you know, case of wrongful imprisonment of this, um, this man who, you know, meanwhile, his family has no idea what's happened to him. They, they think he must've died. Um, and, you know, it isn't until weeks later that they're, they hear from him hear that he's alive. Um, so it's this very dramatic story, very, um, you know, sort of sympathetic story. Um, and it's a story that in fact, um, you know, once I sort of began to dig into it, um, Zaytun himself, he, he, um, goes by his last name, but Zaytun, himself had told this story in other forms. So he had published a blog post, um, he had been interviewed for sort of other sorts of oral history collections. Um, and so again, um, being someone interested in versions, um, in, you know, versions of narrative, um, how narrative changes in different contexts, uh, I sort of started to track the changes of his story over time, ultimately, is it as it culminated in this um, this book by by Eggers, who tells Zaytoun's story um, from the third person perspective, but based on um, years of interviews with him, and as Eggers puts it, sort of through his eyes,
1: through the eyes of Abdul Rahman Zaytun. In your analysis of this nonfiction work, what did you see that caused you to pause for thought? Um,
0: well, so. I mean one one thing again is the way the way that this version is different from these earlier instances of this particular story and one thing that really stuck out to me was there were a couple different sort of kernels or moments that showed up again and again in each version. Um one that I talk about a lot in the chapter is uh, this moment where Zaytun discovers a woman who is um, you know in her flooded home she's you know barely hanging on for life and it's this sort of dramatic rescue he, he barges you know busts in the the door um, comes in and, and pulls her out to safety and this moment is um, described in just kind of slightly nuanced um, differently ways uh in, in the different versions. And so I was interested in that and in why was that changing? Um, what was, what were those changes an indication of, and what I eventually uh, concluded was that Zaytun goes, when he tells the story himself, he's sort of ambiguous about the whole thing, you know, he's sort of like, well, it was, it was, there were bad things and there were good things. Right. Um, and by the time the story gets to Eggers to this sort of highly polished literary telling of it, um, Zaytun is, is pure folk hero. I mean, he's, he's, um, you know, out there on his quest. He's um, this sort of hero of the people and he's, you know, saving this damsel in distress. Right. Um, And, and that in fact was the way that he was celebrated locally until this um, sort of, uh, dramatic um, change in the course of events where it it later um he was uh charged with and convicted of um domestic assault of of um attempting to uh, stalk and and assault his his wife, um, Kathy Zaytun. So he's, I mean, he was convicted of these charges. There's sort of years of legal battles and um, court cases and uh, restraining orders that he violated. And and it basically, you know, each time you see these uh, the headlines, it would say something like, you know, former hero or former folk hero, um, you know, Zaytun behind bars. And so it was like this stark contrast between the way that the character that Dave Eggers had crafted and the, um, the character that now this new, you know, media narrative was, was crafting. And, um, you know, some people were saying like, well, Dave Eggers got it wrong. They should have known he was a criminal all along. And it's, it's sort of like, that's not sort of the point for me. The point is that the, the way that um, the, the, the demand of that particular genre, the way that that Eggers, um, you know, depicted him, had he sort of allowed for a more nuanced engagement with that narrative um, by Zaytun himself, then we wouldn't get this sort of one-sided version. Um, And so this comes a little bit to my larger point, which is, um, you know, when you get personal narratives that are, circulated in public texts and public discourse. Um, I'm arguing that the most ethical way to do that is to incorporate survivors' own engagement with their stories as they're being circulated.
1: And you point out towards the end of this chapter about Zeytun that some people suggested that it was the very fame that he had accumulated through these various outlets, and especially through Egger's book, that drew um, hostility towards him later on. Of course, that's very much debatable. But it certainly seems that from the way you've described it, that he's either just completely perfect or a complete demon. It's very unnuanced in a way that's not very helpful. Right. <laughs> Let's move on to the next chapter in which you're looking at a graphic novel, uh, which is called A.D. New Orleans After the Deluge, and it's by Josh Neufeld. Is that how you say his New- name? Neufeld. Neufeld. So tell us about this graphic novel.
0: So A.D. Um, is uh a, a, a it's in comic form right it's it's, it's but it's non fiction so um uh josh newfield you know went again um this is his work was based on interviews with um real people with katrina survivors um and he he goes to new orleans um he interviews people uh you know and and he publishes this comic that depicts the real stories of, um, these, these survivors of, of New Orleans, of the, uh, of Hurricane Katrina. Um, and initially he published these on a, a website as a web comic. So it's this serial publication where, you know, he's, he's sort of putting up, um, you know, a, f- a few panels at a time, um, and readers are commenting on them. And so it's this really fascinating to kind of dig back through and, and discover this process where, you know, he would put up a panel, um, and and uh, people would comment on it. Would talk about, and and people who were, who had had been there, right? So people who had lived through the hurricane would would comment and say, "Oh, you know what? Like, yeah, you totally got it," or "You kind of messed this up. That's not quite how it how it happened." And he would subsequently, he's the author has talked about this in interviews. You know, he would um, subsequently. Change, you know, the next chapter, like the next installment, um, be, based on that feedback of audiences. And one of the the thing that I sort of end up um, focusing on is that in a couple cases, the survivors themselves, the people, the very people who whose stories he was depicting, were commenting on that web comic. So, you know, people would see themselves portrayed, um, you know, see their experiences depicted in in this serial comic. And they would comment um, and engage in conversation with other commenters. Um, and so there's this really fascinating exchange that happens where someone comes along and says, like, hey, this is I really like this, but it doesn't seem that realistic. You know, what this what this woman is doing doesn't seem right. And then that person who's being depicted, you know, a few minutes later comments and says, well, that's me and that's what I did. Right. And so it, it becomes this. um sort of a very interesting example of how survivors can engage with the production, with the circulation of their narratives.
1: So it sounds like it's doing, at that stage, it was doing exactly what you're advocating for in a way. Right, um, right. So what went wrong? <laughs> <laughs> oh, print media. No. Um...
0: <laughs> well, it, and, you know, it's it, um, it it got published as a book and lost subsequently lost all of that, um, commentary that all of that sort of engagement. Um, and, you know, I think most importantly, all of that context, right. Um, that where you see not only, uh, the, the stories that are being shared about people, but how people feel about the way that their stories are being shared or how they're sort of critiquing the, the circulation of their narratives. Um,
1: and correcting them as well. You know, correcting, correcting
0: them, them yeah. yeah. So basically you lose those, those kind of social dynamics of, of narrative production that are really critical. Um, and that, again, going back to the first chapter, the, that was something that I had really been struck by in the interviews, that interview collection with survivors. And that's what I was sort of looking to find in these popular texts. Right. Are, we see how narratives can be produced in these particular contexts, how people can sort of negotiate those contexts. Where is that happening in popular media? Is it right. happening? Um and the answer is not. It it's happening, but then it gets edited out.
1: <laughs> and you also take issue with some of the drawings. What's what's the problem with those? Um, well, I um in, in looking
0: at um the way that some of the characters were visually depicted, um, it, some of the the so two of the characters in particular, and I'm calling them characters. I mean, they're they're people, um, but uh, they I felt that they were um, the the images were really sort of hearkening back to these um, iconic racist um, caricatures mm-hmm. where you have um, and the, in particular, there's a, a man named Darnell in the book and a woman named Denise, and these are two African American people and. In in certain cases, um, their images really just sort of play into these visual um, and and verbal stereotypes. Where, um, for instance, Denise is, is depicted as sort of chronically angry and tapping into that stereotype of sort of the the um, you know angry black woman. And she herself responded to that and said, "I don't want to be. I don't want to come across that way," um, and there's uh, the Darnell is sort of depicted in this um this way that again sort of with the, his the way that his mouth and his facial features his eyes are are drawn um is is sort of reminiscent of of blackface uh of racialized cartoons um and i think there's just a, a sort of um danger there that Newfeld himself seems very aware of when he, when he talks about it in interviews, you know, he was certainly not, um, consciously perpetrating or or perpetuating, um, you know, these stereotypes. Um, but I think it's just something that when you're working in these mediums and when you're working, um, in, in these sort of traditions, you know, he sort of fell into a a, a trap, I would say, um, that perhaps the, the way out and, you know, um, or i guess the the one one solution or or sort of um i don't know the the word i'm looking for here but alternative i guess um would be again to have what do darnell and, and denise think about those depictions sort of incorporating that into to complicate those those depictions
1: you note in this chapter that although he's drawing on these real survivor narratives, his work is upholding nonetheless, negative stereotypes and and the approach he takes of having a kind of token, this person token, that person kind of flattens out uh, the complexities of the, each individual experience. Um, Right.
0: Right. And that's something that happens um, over and over again in these, this sort of, um, adaptations of personal narrative. That this idea that if we can just get one of each category, then we're you know we're being sort of faithful in our representations of of a, a complex community or group. Right, yes, which, which doesn't work.
1: So in the next chapter, you move on to looking at a documentary film. It's called Trouble the Water, and it, it's focusing on an African American family, the Roberts family. Tell us about this one. <laughs> um, sure. So
0: Kim and Scott Roberts. Um, are uh, the the both sort of subjects and documentarians at different points, Kim, especially. Um, and there's, this is a, again, a, a kind of remarkable story where um, Kim Roberts was on her handheld video camera was documenting Katrina before it happened. So she's sort of going around her neighborhood and filming and, and talking about this is the, she's taking the before shots because she knows something's going to happen. Um, And then she has this, uh, you know, serendipitous encounter or, you know, runs into uh, these filmmakers in a shelter in Alexandria, Louisiana, after she's evacuated, Um, she approaches them and tells them that she has this footage, uh, you know, from before and and during, and she films sort of uh, some moments during the storm itself. And so she ends up, they end up making the documentary incorporating her footage and then also sort of um you know documenting her and scott's experiences after the storm of returning home Uh, so you know all in all it's it's um you know she she doesn't have it's not like the entire documentary is her footage it's sort of um incorporated throughout um some of it they they sort of they uh cut back and forth between you know a a few minutes of, of her shots and then sort of where Kim and Scott are now as filmed by um, uh, Tia Lesson and Carl Deal, the the filmmakers. So, uh, you know, it's, what's fascinating, what, what I find sort of most fascinating about it is the, this is an example of, of that, what I'm sort of arguing for where you see her talking about exactly what she wants to happen with her footage, with her story. Right. Um, and you see her anticipating how people might respond to it. So you get this sort of built-in engagement and critique with the way in which her story is circulated.
1: Yes, you describe it, I think, as being unique in terms of participatory structures.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But I think you you find the ending problematic.
0: Yes, yeah, I do. <laughs> um, so, I mean, she, you know, the, the, I think the most powerful moments are those moments where um, you get this sort of unsettled, feeling, right? But you, you don't quite know, um, you know, she says things like, you know, I, I, this footage is going to, you know, some white people are going to watch this, right? And you're sort of, uh, viewers seeing that are sort of taken aback about her, um, you know, anticipation of how this might be used, right? Um, and so you get these moments of unsettlement that I think are actually very productive in terms of making people feel uncomfortable in the ways in which they may themselves have been spectators of disaster, um, you know, sort of calling out the viewers of the film as potentially also sort of passive viewers of, of disaster, right. Um, of people's suffering. Um, but what happens at the end that, that I take issue with is viewers are sort of let off the hook <laughs> um, because you get this, this nice resolution, um, you get this this moment that really echoes um, the idea of, of of racial uplift, where um, Kim and Scott, this African American couple from New Orleans Ninth Ward, um, come back to New Orleans, and you know Scott gets this job as a, as a carpenter, and they sort of are glorifying the manual labor that he's participating in, um, and you know Kim is participating in this this uh, protest in in the neighborhood, and um, it's presented as um you know basically this sort of redemption that that they have come out stronger um which i'm not saying that they haven't right but the the result for someone viewing it is that there's the that audiences are also sort of left to feel um like all as well right um and and like the all of the ways in which we've been unsettled and made to feel implicit um, throughout the film, are really we're really comforted by the end of it, and um, you know I think that sort of undermines some of the other good work that it does.
1: Right. So I, I think uh, somewhere else in the book it says about how one of the problems with these uh, nicely wrapped up narratives that end on a high is that it kind of lets the consumers of those narratives off the hook about worrying about institutional and ongoing issues that remain concerning. Uh, marginalisation and racism and poor infrastructure and so on and so forth.
0: And also in terms of their own consumption um, of the narratives of disaster. Of
1: course, yes. So now we move on to chapter five, which is the chapter you alluded to earlier, when you go back to New Orleans for the 10th anniversary. You go back and it's all about the resilient New Orleans yes what was it like going back it was difficult and rewarding
0: at the same time I mean it was in in some ways it was um you know it was really uh, important for me to be able to um to talk to people as I was sort of approaching the end of this product project and um forming conclusions about the ways in which people's stories were circulated I I really felt strongly we need to to sort of check in about that um And, um, so in that way, it was, um, it was really good to be there. Um, it was also difficult to be there because it's, um, you know, it's, it's an ongoing struggle. Um, and it's something that many people didn't really want to talk about. Um, or, you know, as I talked about their sort of, uh, their way of marking the occasion is by doing something else. Um, so, and, you know, it's also, it's it was something that I lived through as well, so so going back and revisiting it is, is sort of emotionally exhausting also
1: so just in terms of how the tenth anniversary was being marked, what were you finding
0: well so there were there was a the biggest um thing i I noticed was this contrast between the official narrative, the official motto slogan um of the city, so the city of New Orleans was celebrating um you know. There, as, you, as you mentioned, their sort of campaign was resilient New Orleans. So they were all about, um, you know, we have rebuilt. And people in this part of the, the country are resilient, um, and there was a lot of resistance to that in the sort of vernacular commemorations and and um, celebrations that people were participating in, because first of all, they felt that that um, that narrative suggested the responsibility to rebuild was on the shoulders of of them. survivors, mm-hmm. right Like sort of you know you you can you can re, you're so resilient, you can rebuild yourself. You don't need any help from the federal government, right? Um, so there was that um, there's that element of resistance to that. And then there's also just a lot of uh, of different um, ways in which people felt that they were not sort of reflected in those official narratives. So they were doing things like having second line parades or um, you know participating in going visiting uh, you know, cemeteries and, and memorial sites and sort of, um, you know, engaging in their own forms of commemoration.
1: And when you were doing the interviews, were you uh, connecting with people you knew or you have been introduced to, or were you just kind of finding people there as you were going about the city?
0: I did a little of both. Um, the, the main, uh, I I mean, I sort of talked to people throughout the city, you know, at commemoration events, um, Some of them were just people who I knew who I was running into. Some of them were people I talked to. Um, But I also uh, orchestrated a a workshop at Delgado Community College where I used to teach and um, had it be a a workshop in sort of storytelling and photography. So I was I I wanted to make it something because after talking to folks there, um, my former colleagues there, um, they felt it was important for not to be sort of all about Katrina. And so I wanted to offer some you know, something that people could, could benefit from. Um, so we, it was a, a, a workshop where people were coming to learn skills in interviewing and photography. And then also um, the the sort of subject matter of those training activities was to, to talk about their experiences of, of the hurricane. Um, so it, trying to sort of loosely and, you know, in a very abbreviated form Um, recreate that model of the surviving Katrina and Rita and Houston project, where they were in fact talking to one another. Um, And so they, uh, you know, people in that workshop, that was where I really noticed um, this sort of resistance to the official narrative of commemoration.
1: The last chapter is your conclusion in which you are suggesting ideas about how narratives can be used in the future. And you've talked about this throughout the interview, but I wonder if you can sum up your overall argument. Sure. Um, So essentially, um, you know,
0: there's a huge demand for personal narratives uh, after a large scale disaster. People want to hear the sort of personal um, accounts. And so I think that um, one point is that the, the ethical way to circulate those narratives, it's not that they shouldn't be shared, but they should be shared in a way that allows survivors to um, comment on and interact with and engage with the, the processes by which they are shared. So it, these published accounts should include the commentary and critique of the survivors themselves.
1: Right. It's a it's a fascinating book. Is there anything you want to mention about it that I didn't give you the chance to uh, say as we were going along? Um, I feel like I've said so many things. <laughs> <laughs> You'll think of something as soon as we hang up.
0: <laughs> well, I guess I'd, maybe just a, a sort of note of appreciation for all the folks who who helped it um, come along, and um, also just you know the the I guess I, I've written elsewhere about the the. Conflicts or, or the challenges of writing about something that I also experienced personally. So that kind of idea of survivor and ethnographer, I think, is maybe a, 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 an interview for another day. Um, but something right. that, that raises Absolutely. interesting questions, I think, for the field.
1: Before I let you go, can you tell us what you're working on now? Sure. So I am working currently.
0: Um, in Bowling Green, there's a large population of. Um, Bosnian Americans who were refugees of the um, Bosnian War in the 1990s, and there are a surprising number of parallels um, of, with, between my work with um, Katrina and with these folks here, with people who are displaced, um, who are attempting to sort of narrate their experiences in a way that um, you know accounts for both the traumas that they that they endured and also their their current lives. Um, and so I'm. Meeting folks here, interviewing folks here um, recently had the opportunity to go to Bosnia to sort of understand some of their their background. Um, and you know trying to understand how narrative and commemoration of things like disaster and conflict, um, you know how those how those work, how those work to reconfigure communities.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with us today on the New Books in Folklore podcast channel, which is one of the many channels at the New Books Network. Kate Parker-Horrigan, thank you very much. Thank you, Rachel.